0: Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insight into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Andrew Evans, and I'm your host for today's health policy-focused podcast. Drug pricing has been a big priority for this Congress, as well as President Trump, for a while now. And today we're discussing some of the latest reform efforts in this area with Tara O'Neill Hayes, the Deputy Director of Healthcare Policy here at the American Action Forum. Tara, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, and you're excited to be here.
0: So I want to talk to you about the Senate Finance Committee's bill on drug pricing that they just passed, as that bill is perhaps the most recent legislative activity on drug pricing. <laughs> I'm especially excited to have you here to talk about this bill because you actually proposed one of the biggest reforms that they included, right?
1: Thanks, Andrew. You're making me blush. Um, I don't know that I can take all the credit for this, but, yes, I did write a paper um, essentially laying out the framework that was used uh, in, the, in the Part D reforms of the finance bill.
0: I definitely want to talk to you about what you proposed there. But, but first, can you lay out for us what the problem was that you were trying to solve with your proposal?
1: Yeah. So first off, let me say what we're talking about here is the Medicare Part D program. So this offers insurance coverage for prescription drugs for seniors in Medicare. Um, What we were really concerned with is rising costs in the program, both for taxpayers and patients. And a lot of that was really stemming from what we noticed were perverse incentives in the program. Um, And some of those incentives encouraged use of more expensive medicines. And so we wanted to find ways to help bring down the costs of the program.
0: Tell me more about these perverse incentives. Does it have anything to do with the structure of the program? Like what's what's driving it?
1: Yeah, that certainly is part of it. So, let me just explain what the structure looks like for a Part D plan. So like most insurance plans, you start with a deductible where the patient has to pay all of the costs until the deductible is met. And then there's an initial coverage phase where the beneficiary typically owes 25% of the cost. The insurers cover the rest. And then this is where the Part D program is a little wonky, unlike other insurance plans. Um, There used to be when it was initially created, there was what we called the coverage gap or the donut hole um, that has since been closed as part of the ACA. And one way that it was closed was requiring manufacturer rebates to cover 50% of the costs in the coverage gap. And then the beneficiary covers 25 and the insurer has the other 25. And then you move into a fourth phase as you continue increasing your spending. And that is the catastrophic phase, the final phase. And that is where the government actually pays 80% of the cost and Beneficiaries pay 5% and insurers have just 15%. So they have very limited liability for the most expensive patients.
0: So what was driving these these increased costs for, for patients in the government?
1: So part of it is just use of or more expensive medicines coming to market and using those more expensive medicines. Um, and then some of it is... The perverse incentives, the limited liability, you know, of the insurers not necessarily having the strongest incentives to control costs um, and some of the rebate structure um, that sometimes encourage use of more expensive medicines.
0: Okay, so so. Manufacturers are giving a lot of money, um, sort of, you know, giving discounts on their on their medications in this third phase, and then in the fourth phase, there uh, the government is picking up a, a huge part of the tab. And so insurers presumably don't care if if patients get to this this fourth phase. Is that is that sort of what what's what's driving this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say they don't care, but maybe they don't care as much if their liability was higher. Um, and with the manufacturers having their rebates in the coverage gap means that there's a fixed amount of maximum rebate that they'll have to pay, and it doesn't increase as the price of the drug
0: increases. Okay, that's interesting. You know, honestly, as we're talking about this, I'm reminded of the fact that that Medicare Part D has been sort of hailed as this, you know, paragon of of policymaking um, excellence in a sense, in that it was. Um, uh, it came in under budget. It leveraged the market in interesting and, and excellent ways. A lot of people said our boss here actually I guess scored it when he was director right. of the Congressional Budget Office. And he's a big fan of the program because it it so effectively um, brought private insurers into the Medicare program and used them to help drive uh, cost reductions. Uh, And so the program initially seemed to be be very effective at that. But now you're saying that it's actually the the program structure is driving up costs for the government, for beneficiaries. Is that what you're saying here?
1: Yeah. So I think when the program was initially created, it worked very well. Um, It has done an excellent job of leveraging competition. The average beneficiary I believe this year has – a choice of 23 different Part D plans to choose from. So there really is a lot of competition and allows beneficiaries to choose the plan that is most appropriate for them. Um, I think where we've kind of hurt ourselves is by focusing so much on premiums. And this isn't just a problem in the Part D space. It's also, you know, what we talk about to measure the success of, you know, the individual market insurance plans in the ACA, right? Like there's always focus on premiums because that really is what is, I think, most pertinent to a buyer when they're, you know, shopping for their insurance plan.
0: Because the premium is just the, the initial price that they have right. to pay Right, and it's the fixed
1: price that you pay each month. And if you know you, you have to pay your premium in order to keep coverage, of course you want it to be as low as possible. The downside, or you know, the flip side to that is the lower the premium cost, the higher the out-of-pocket cost is likely to be. I mean, you have a fixed amount of health insurance costs that have to be covered and they get covered by premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. And so the lower the premium, the higher the out-of-pocket cost. And so that's Really, what we're seeing here, as as we brag about how low the premiums are, in fact, next year, the premium is supposed to be as low, almost equal to what it was in 2008. And I don't think it's necessarily appropriate for the premiums to be as low as they were 12 years ago, given that we know the cost of drugs has gone up so high. And so what we're seeing, the consequence of that is what's really driving this current conversation where people are outraged by how expensive their out-of-pocket costs are.
0: Burrus mm, oh no, that's interesting. So the the these insurers, as we think about their incentives, they have every incentive to uh, to try to keep their, their premiums down because that's what people are using to, to judge what they're going to buy. So they'd push the costs of the plant everywhere else in the program, whether the, the catastrophic phase or to the out-of-pocket costs for beneficiaries in order to keep premiums low. Mm-hmm. And then that's driving up costs for patients, that's driving up costs for the government.
1: Right. And it's primarily hurting the patients with the highest expenses. So. You really are getting into a situation where the sick are subsidizing the healthy. So by having the sick pay more in out-of-pocket costs and keeping premiums low, it allows everyone to benefit from the low premiums, but the healthy people aren't doing anything to help you know, subsidize and balance the risk pool and help pay for the cost of the more expensive patients, which is really what an insurance plan is actually supposed to do. It's supposed to balance those costs, and it's not right now.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Super. Thanks so much for explaining that. Did you identify this problem and then come up with a solution?
1: No. So back in 2016, actually, MedPAC, which is a commission of advisors to Congress on Medicare payment policy, um, they had been tracking these trends for a while and realized this was an issue and put forward a proposal then to – change the benefit structure. President Obama and Trump included that proposal in several of their budgets. But then in February of last year, a law was passed that changed the coverage gap and increased manufacturer rebates. And that really changed the calculus and made that solution no longer workable. It wasn't gonna achieve the same results. So my proposal builds off of that plan with some tweaks to account for the changes in the BBA.
0: Let's let's come back to what uh, – in a minute to what, what your proposal tries to do. Uh, what other problems do you see the Senate finance bill trying to address?
1: Yeah, so Part D is one piece. Uh, Medicare Part D is one piece that they're looking at. And then, of course, there's also drug spending under Medicare Part B, B as in boy, and that um, – the drugs covered under that program are physician-administered drugs. So,
0: so is that like hospital inpatient – is that um, what that covers? So Pet not part inpatient,
1: B? actually outpatient. outpatient okay. um, hospital inpatient drugs are actually covered under a separate thing. We don't really account for them separately. They're typically bundled into a hospital service. Um, but these are drugs that you might get in your doctor's office. Probably the easiest thing for people to think about is chemo. You know, when you're sitting in the chair, you have um, your chemo infusion. That is a primary example of a Part B drug, Um, whereas Part D is the drugs you pick up at the pharmacy that you administer yourself. You take a pill most typically. Um, And so we spend about 30 billion or roughly a third of what we spend under Part D. We spend under Part B as in boy um, each year on drugs. And so there also were some reforms in that space to help I would say most of them are focused on encouraging use of lower-cost drugs, trying to change some of the financial incentives for providers.
0: It's like generics.
1: Um, Greater use, well, primarily, you don't have as many generics in the Part B space just because of the types of drugs. A lot of them are biologics, and biologics, scientifically, by definition, cannot have a generic, but their generic version is what we call a biosimilar, Um, and so... We are trying to encourage greater use of biosimilars um, with, with several of the provisions. And then there's also um, Medicaid, which ensures 74 million people in the country. Of course, you know, many of them have drug expenses as well. And, so, and we have different policies regarding Medicaid payment for, for drugs. And so there's some changes in that area as well.
0: Okay. So let's, let's talk about your proposal for Medicare Part D. What does it do? How does it work? Walk us through that.
1: Yeah. So I think the easiest way to think of it is three separate components. Um, So first, and I think most importantly, as I said before, beneficiaries currently have unlimited spending. If you get to catastrophic, you're still paying 5% of the cost. The first component of this plan is to put a cap on beneficiary out-of-pocket costs. And so once you hit that cap, you are done paying for the year. You don't have any more expenses. Uh, We looked at Ranges from twenty five hundred to four thousand. The Senate Finance Bill puts the cap at thirty one hundred dollars. Then the second piece, um, as I talked about, the manufacturer rebates and the coverage gap that the ACA imposed, we would move those mandatory rebates from the third phase, the coverage gap, into the final phase, the catastrophic coverage phase, and. And then we would also alter the um, liability held by the insurers and the government in the catastrophic phase, similar to what MedPAC did in their original proposal in 2016. And so government reinsurance would be reduced from 80 percent to 20, and then insurers would have 60 percent of the costs.
0: Okay. So I know that you mentioned the out-of-pocket cap and how they... they didn't. You looked at a range of things. They they had to pick one, obviously. Uh, did they did they largely just copy and paste what you suggested in your in your paper? How did they? What how did the does the Senate bill and your proposal? How do they relate?
1: Yeah, so I would say conceptually the framework is the same. Um, it's just it's the numbers, the percentages that changed, um, and. And how significant the impact of those changes, how much the variation matters, uh, is difficult to know. Um, But I will note kind of one of the most important things um, is the pharmaceutical liability in the catastrophic phase. When we were working on this, we worked with Milliman, an actuarial firm, to model um, this proposal, and they found, you know, based on the data that they have, which obviously is not the all of the Medicare Part D spending data, um, but but their model suggested that nine percent was roughly. Um, the percentage that was required in order to hold the pharmaceutical industry harmless. And what I mean by that is what we project their spending for the coverage gap rebates to be under current law um, would be roughly equal to if we move those rebates into the catastrophic phase than what we expect under current law. If we set it at 9%, you get roughly the same number.
0: Mm-hmm. Those would be a 9% discount effectively in the final phase. Yeah, so
1: they would have to pay 9% of all costs incurred in the in the catastrophic phase. Um, and so the finance bill increased that to 20%, which of course is more than double. Um, and so in the simplest terms, you know, I, I guess that means the... Pharmaceutical companies will pay twice as much as they were currently expected under current law. So, as you can imagine, they probably aren't thrilled with that. Um, Do you
0: have any sense for why why they why they did that?
1: So, I mean, this is completely me guessing, speculating here. Um, I think on the one hand, there is some desire to make pharma pay more. Um, They're kind of a target right now of of angst and frustration. And um, so I think maybe the status quo was just unacceptable for some people. Um, Also, and this was maybe more important, it could just be a matter of the CBO score. I mean, at the end of the day, we know how much weight there is to the CBO score and how much, um, you know, is this going to cost the federal government? Where do we need to get money from? And so that very well could be part of it,
0: too. Oh, interesting. So they're just... Potentially trying to pull money out of the pharmaceutical industry in order to keep the government's costs down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Interesting. Uh, Thanks for explaining your your proposal. Um, One other thing in the bill that caught my attention were were these price growth penalties. A lot of people complain about not only high prices but the sort of skyrocketing prices of current drugs. Um, What's going on here with these with these price growth? Caps, penalties, how how do they work? Yeah, inflation penalties.
1: Um, So, right, included in this bill was an inflation penalty um, really across the board for Part D drugs, Part B drugs. And also in Medicaid, there actually already is an inflation penalty, but they increased the amount of penalty that would have to be paid in the Medicaid space. Um, But, right, as you said, the price of drugs Existing drugs, um, for many of them, is increasing. Um, for plenty of people, they believe that price is increasing way too much. Um, and it's a judgment call, <laughs> um, you know, subjective what you think might be appropriate or not. But at the end of the day, I mean, healthcare is one of the few markets where the price of a product or a service increases over time. I mean, you think of like your iPhone, the price of an iPhone 6 does not increase over time, it decreases, right? A new model comes out, better product comes out, that price decreases. You pay more for new and better technology, less for existing and older technology. Um so it is kind of a strange a strange phenomenon that we have happening in the healthcare market.
0: Do you have any sense um, why why that is?
1: Um, I wish I had a good answer. Um, Sometimes, you know, it is that the company has done additional research after a drug has come to market and they find new uses for the drug. And so I think they fairly say, well, you know, it actually has more value than we believed before it can be used for these other things. Um, I think it is fair to say that it, it has more value if you think we should be paying based on that value, then the response is to increase the price. Um, Technically they haven't necessarily done any more work. And so, you, you know, their costs haven't necessarily increased. So from that angle, is it a, Appropriate to increase the price. Again, this is you know, <laughs> it's it's subjective. There's not a right or wrong. Yeah, people course. are going to feel differently about that. Um, and and you want to, you do want to encourage innovation, and you want to encourage the manufacturers to look for as many uses for their product as possible. That means more people are being treated, right? Um, and and so you know maybe that's an argument to say you know, they should be able to increase their price at least to some degree. But but what degree is appropriate? I don't know. That's hard to say.
0: So how would this inflation penalty so, work? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so the inflation penalty... Um is intended to keep prices from rising beyond inflation, Um, you know, essentially saying that is an acceptable amount of price increase, you know, up to the point of inflation. Um, And anything beyond that, you would have to basically pay a refund for that price difference. Anytime a Medicare beneficiary takes your drug or or Medicaid. Um, And I think At first glance, that sounds like it makes sense. It sounds reasonable. Taxpayers are largely subsidizing these costs. You know, so why would we allow them to keep increasing their prices and we're paying for it? Um, The nothing's ever really as simple as it seems. Right. It's never that straightforward. So the flip side to this, the unintended consequence is that what you're really doing, if you're penalizing a price increase, you're encouraging a higher beginning price or a higher launch price. And so that's the trade-off. Maybe instead of setting the price of my drug initially at $100 and increasing it to say 150 over the next 10 years, I just go ahead and start at 150 and keep my price flat and so is that really what we're going for here Um, unfortunately there's almost always an unintended consequence um, and and that's what you would see here
0: yeah interesting so the effort to keep prices from rising too fast could actually make them just make prices higher. Overall. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, thanks for thanks for explaining that. I know there's a lot more in the bill and I know that you wrote a piece um, sort of going through it section by section, maybe not every section, but <laughs> almost every section. There's a um, lot. Yeah. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I want to think just more broadly about the the drug pricing landscape sort of reform efforts in this area. Um, this bill you know, isn't the only thing going on in Congress right now regarding drug pricing, I know. And and just for our listeners, we talked with Christopher Holt, uh, the director of healthcare policy here at AAF, back in June about where the problems are with drug, drug pricing and what the various policy solutions or policy options are. So that's episode four, in case you want to listen to that conversation. Um, but Tara, beyond this bill from the Senate Finance Committee, what else do you see going on or has been going on regarding drug pricing?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot happening um, both in Congress and in the administration. Um, on the congressional side, we have also seen bills come out of the Senate HELP Committee, um, several bills out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, and also legislation from the House Energy and Commerce Committees and Ways and Means. So really, across the board, we've been seeing work here on a bicameral, bipartisan basis. Um, I really applaud the legislators for. The their work to make sure that everything getting done does have bipartisan support. Of course, that's why you end up with provisions in the bill that Republicans don't necessarily love. We are in a situation where you have to have Democratic support um, for these to actually become law. And so, you know, th- there's good and bad in there, um, but but they're working hard um, and, and there's a, a lot been going on. So hopefully after this August recess um, we'll, we'll see some movement. The plan, supposedly at least in the Senate, is to combine the finance, help, and judiciary bills all into a single package and pass those Um, the administration also has been doing some work it's as far as things that have been done and actually completed. That list is a little shorter. There's been a lot of proposals. There have been some things done and struck down by the courts. And so we haven't seen anything actually take effect yet that's having a substantial effect. Um, but but there's a lot happening and there's still a lot of proposals on the table. Um, they just recently proposed um, or put out a plan to propose an <laughs> importation plan Um to allow for the importation of drugs from from Canada and for manufacturers to import their drugs voluntarily as well from any other country. Um, how likely that is to work and be effective is um, I'm incredibly skeptical, I'll say that. Um, and then there also is looming out there the International Pricing Index, this proposal that would um, require Medicare Part B prices to be based on basically an average of what countries other countries pay for those same drugs um, and supposedly the latest I've heard is that that will be part of a plan that gets announced in September um, so we're kind of waiting to see on that
0: interesting what what of the administration's proposals have been enacted
1: so requiring drug prices to be listed in ads in a company's ad um, was finalized but then that was struck down by a court um, there was a bill passed requiring or prohibiting the inclusion of gag clauses in insurance plans, which essentially prohibits a pharmacist from telling a patient that they could pay less for a drug um, if they don't use their insurance. Um, That was enacted and signed into law.
0: The, the White House, I know they announced recently that they're going to roll out some sort of Affordable Care Act replacement plan. I think – I guess that's what the speculation is or maybe there have been some reports about that. Roll out some sort of ACA replacement plan in September in case this law is – in case the law is struck down by the courts. I know there's a, a case winding through right now. What kind of impact would a repeal of the Affordable Care Act have on drug prices as you see it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of people don't realize that the Affordable Care Act is much more than just the insurance exchanges for the individual market. Also included in that bill, as I mentioned earlier, was um, the provisions to close the coverage gap in Medicare Part D and require these manufacturer rebates. Um, And then the ACA also included a pathway for biosimilars to be approved. And so without the ACA, we would have no biosimilars. And like I said, those are basically the generic versions of biologic medicines which are some of the most expensive medicines on the market. So if you want cheaper alternatives to those you'd have to pass a new law basically allowing for, for biosimilars to be approved.
0: Fascinating. Thanks for that. So just here at the end we have a section where we probably one of, one of our favorite sections of the podcast where we talk about something personal to try to get to know you a little bit. I understand that you were a gymnast at one point? What's what's the story there? How'd you get into that?
1: <laughs> yes, um, I started when I was like three and did it for about ten years. Um, I fell in love with it. I I competed for probably seven years or so, um, and then after too many injuries, I eventually quit and became a an competitive cheerleader, uh, which was a lot of fun as well. But
0: did you have a favorite event?
1: Oh, um, the uneven bars. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun.
0: Could you launch yourself in the air and do flips like we see in the Olympics?
1: Not on that level by any means, <laughs> but uh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> that's that's so neat.
0: So do you do you do you still do you still do anything?
1: So every year on my birthday, I make sure that I can still do a backhand spring. So just did that. Monday was my birthday, and still got it. <laughs>
0: Very good. Well done. That's Tara O'Neill-Hayes. Thank you so much for coming in, Tara, to to talk to us about these issues.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode where our experts will provide clear data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. I'd also like to encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes um, from this episode and also follow us on social media to hear more about AAF.